the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who, in many instances, have absolutely no clue what they are doing. Welcome to What Radicalized You, a podcast of stories and experiences that have shaped people's ideas about our world and the way society should function. My name is Syra Rao. I'm 47 years old. I live in Denver, Colorado. I'm the daughter of Indian immigrants born and raised in Richmond, Virginia, a little over 100 years after slavery, quote, ended. It was a weird place to grow up, 70s and 80s. We were one of like 25 Indian families, South Asian families, I should say, in Richmond. Nobody knew what we were, who we were, constantly asked, you know, if I was Dot or Feather. On my birth certificate, this is an interesting story. I was born and... My mom, my late mother, said that I was, you know, in the bassinet and doctors and nurses kept coming by, kind of smiling, then nervously laughing, then looking weird. And she started panicking that something was wrong with me, the newborn baby. And finally, they came in with the birth certificate and handed it to her. And they said we didn't know what to do. They checked a box for my father as being African-American and they checked a box for my mother as Caucasian, and they said there was no box for other. They literally just created a scenario of, we don't know what you are, and so at birth, I was I was othered. Let's flash forward to now, moved to Denver. I guess my mom's a good segue for that. My mom died very suddenly nine years ago when she was visiting me and my family up in the New York City area, which is where we were. And she had, as it turned out, late stage pulmonary fibrosis, which is a terminal lung disease that we didn't know about. And she had come to watch my kids while we went on vacation with some friends from Denver. And when I left, she was holding my son and frying fish. And when I came back, we came back as an emergency because she was admitted to the hospital. It was Mother's Day. She was in the ICU and she was given days to live. And she actually died a couple weeks later. And her funeral was on my 38th birthday. So I totally freaked out and did what you're not supposed to do when you're in deep grief, which is a massive life change. And I uprooted my family and moved out to Denver to be closer to these friends that I had gone on vacation with who were like sisters to me. So kind of back and forth growing up as a kid of immigrants, we didn't have any family here. My parents' families were all back in India or in the Middle East. And the kids that I grew up with were like, you know, my cousins, my aunts and uncles. And so when I went to college, the friends that I made there became my chosen family, totally became my chosen family. And a bunch of them moved to Denver after college. That's why sort of I naturally wanted to gravitate here after my mom died. Had a bunch of friends in New York, but as New York is, we were living in Connecticut, having moved from Manhattan and Brooklyn there once we had kids. And it was wild. You know, I, I there were a couple of days where I couldn't get out of bed. I was so grief stricken. And like my best friend who lived, my, my son's godmother, who lived in Brooklyn at the time, was like, I'm coming right now. And by the time, you know, it was like two and a half hours later and it hit me that, wow, even my close friends and network were also spread apart. So Denver made sense. 
And so to what radicalized me, which is a really good question. There's so many things, right? There's been many points along the way that I think that I've been building up to the radicalization. But let's get to a couple days after Donald Trump won the election, the whole year leading up to that, I, like so many others, busted my ass because I knew the minute he, you know, called Mexicans rapists and said that he was going to ban Muslims, I knew at that point that he was going to win. Like, I, I knew it. And it's funny because all these white liberal friends of mine, it was at that point, they're like, oh my God, he has no chance because white supremacy depends on the feigned ignorance of white moderates and white liberals and white people in general, obviously. But so I did, you know, I had, we, we housed Canadian Clinton volunteers in our house, held fundraisers, knocked doors. My daughter, who's seven at the time, after school, we'd go knock doors together. And I could tell you, you know, we were knocking doors around University of Denver, college students, and the amount of them said that they were voting for Donald Trump was just, you know, we knew, I knew, I knew. So Anyway, I was begging all these friends, these sister friends to to do anything with me. And they literally laughed at me. They're too busy, first of all. Every, you know, white, no one's busier than a crazy busy white woman. Too busy with kids, lacrosse games and soccer games and barbecues and skiing. Because all of that stuff, obviously, is so much more important than democracy. Then it got to the point where in the months leading up to the election, it was just straight up gaslighting. Like full, you've gone crazy. We're getting a little worried about you. This is all you're thinking about. This is all you're talking about. This is all that you're doing is around this. And what's wild, right, is that Hillary Clinton is one of their own, a white woman. And, you know, nobody was less supportive than white women. We know what happened in that November election. And it was wild, you know, a couple of days, like while it was happening, they were all like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, Syrah. Like, as if this was my personal loss. And they just gave themselves away, right? Because in their minds, Donald Trump being president really wasn't going to affect them either way. It wasn't their game. Like they didn't really care, frankly. So two days after the election, one of these sister friends, I'm going to call all of them Jan. Okay. So it's like Jan one, two, three, four. It was Jan's birthday. And we were going to have a double, you know, birthday party plus celebrating the first woman president. And I just couldn't bear to go. I was, I really was, it felt like the days, it felt to me like the days and weeks after my mom died where I couldn't get out of bed. And it was starting to freak me out. Like, you know, people had to come pick up my kids and take them to school. And the day after the election, the day before this doomed Jan dinner, one of the Jans came over to drop my kid off. And I had like clearly not gotten out of bed. It was four o'clock in the afternoon. And she walks in with her son, who's my daughter's age. So they're both seven, eight years old. And the boy says to me, Syrah, this is really bad, huh? And I said, you don't know how bad it is. It's a disaster. It's a disaster of epic proportions. And Jan looks at me and she goes, stop catastrophizing. Just stop. And I looked at her and I said, it is in fact a catastrophe like zero. And she was like, whatever. See you tomorrow night. And I said, I, there's absolutely no way. Look at me. I'm in no position to go out for dinner. So all the next day I'm getting texts and calls. Come on, come on, come on. So I drag myself out of bed and go to dinner with the four Jans. We sit down to dinner and they're all making grab them by the pussy jokes. Like it's literally, this is a joke for them. It's, it's worse than not caring. It's a joke. It's like it, they think it's funny. So I'm just sitting there kind of suffering through dinner, waiting to get the check and get out of there. Mind you, that morning I'd put on Facebook 
the last time I felt this sad was when my mom died. And I had joined all these like Facebook groups for pulmonary fibrosis, which is the disease that killed my mom. And I guess, I mean, I, I posted that and like didn't check Facebook again all day, miraculously. And I went to the bathroom when I was at the restaurant, took my phone and someone texted me, a woman from college texted me and said, I'm so sorry, the stuff that they're saying about your mom on Facebook has sent me over the edge and I'm in bed drinking tequila now. And I was like, what? Like, what? what is anyone saying about my dead mother on Facebook? And it turns out one of the pulmonary fibrosis people took my, my post, shared it on her Facebook. I guess she was like a, a Trumper. And the next thing you know, I went down the black hole, which I should not have. I went over to her page and they were all mocking my dead mother, calling her an N-word, the N-word, calling her a terrorist, and then making fun of the fact that she couldn't even spell my name because my name is Syra, not Sarah. Look at these terrorists. You know, they can't even spell their kids' names right. I was just so stunned. Like, this happened on the part of a woman who I was, like, in community with over her husband died the same time my mom died from the same disease. Like, it was, it was gutting. It felt gutting. And so I'm crying. I go back to the table and I'm thinking to myself, besides my dead mother and my sister, the only people who will, who would, who had rob the, these, these Jans at the table are the people I, I feel like I love the most who loved my mother. I mean, they loved my mother. You know, we, we all met freshman year of college and they would come, none of them were from Virginia. So we went to UVA together. They would come home to Richmond on the weekends with me. My mom would do their laundry, make dinner forever. You know, that like they, my mom was their family. So they would get it. They would know. They would love. They would. They would. They would have a tremendous amount of empathy. My God, how wrong I was. So I sit down. I'm crying, and they're like, "What's wrong?" And I tell them what happens. There's a moment of silence, and Jan number one says, "You know what? Can't you just lighten up for once?" Jan number two goes, "Yeah, I mean, it's Jan's birthday tonight. Is not about you." Birthday Jan looks at Jan number four and she goes, your skin looks great. What are you wearing? And that was the whole, like, the whole play, you know, acts one through three. I just sat there. I was so stunned. Now I get it all because I've been doing this work now since then, really. Got the bill, called my Uber. And, you know, by the way, this is how we know that personal relationships don't end racism because I have no doubt these these women really did love my mom and they did love me, but nothing trumps whiteness, nothing. And that's why we are where we are now. I pay my share, my Uber comes and two of the Jans hop in the Uber with me because we all live right next to each other. And so we're in the car, I'm sitting in the middle and I'm thinking to myself, surely, surely. These two, by the way, were my like joint bridesmaids. Like they were my closest, closest, closest friends. And they start talking about spin class for the next day over top of me, like planning, you know, do they want to do pure bar or spin? And I'm just really, I'm sincerely reeling. Like I felt like the you know world was turning. So I get home, I get in bed and I'm hundred percent expecting my phone to blow up from all of them. Crickets, crickets. I wake up the next day, crickets. So I send them all a, t- a text. And then the following days, weeks, months, and frankly, year was a cacophony of white fragility, white silence, white tone policing, white gaslighting. 
and it woke me up that it, it, and, and that's what radicalized me. And what scares me about it is it was the perfect storm. I mean, that's what it took. It took my, like my closest friends in the world shitting on my late mother. That's what it took. And that's what scares me so much because of course, like I said, along the way, I've known again since birth that I'm not white, that I'm other. And I did everything in my power as, you know, the daughter of immigrants to essentially make the whole immigration story worth it for my parents. So what does that mean? You know, we talked about assimilation. We were we were taught about assimilation from birth. What does assimilation mean? It means assimilation to white culture, not black culture. So assimilation depends on people like my family and me engaging in anti-blackness. Because if there's a top, which is white supremacy, there's got to be a bottom. And who's at the bottom? It's black people. Like, and, and we all pretend that that's not the case, but that's the case. And then the rest of us exist somewhere in the middle. So what does that look like for Asians? It looks like Asians shitting on each other. We shit on each other because anti-blackness also requires us to hate ourselves, self-loathing, um, in order to be as white as possible. And so um, I did all of that, you know, ignoring, ignoring the blatant xenophobia and racism that I experienced at the hands of friends, teachers, principals, coaches, all along the way, just totally ignoring it. I ignored it when, you know, a guy in my high school class called me the N-word. I ignored it when my very best friend in high school was silent when a bunch of guys circled us and started laughing at me and pointing and calling me a Hawaiian. You know, I ignored it when one of these two Jans was out for dinner with her in Charlottesville when we were in college with two other white women. And they all were laughing at a table of Asian people sitting next to us. And when I piped up and said, I'm Asian, they're like, oh, you're not like that kind of Asian. And I ignored it and I was silent. So I was silent in the face of oppression against me. And I engaged and I ignored it. And I laughed along when people made fun of my parents' accents and people made fun of the way my, my house smelt and people made fun of the food that we ate that my mom painstakingly made with you know, crooked hands. She suffered from rheumatoid arthritis since she was in her 30s, and that's what ultimately killed her. It led to pulmonary fibrosis. But I threw myself under the bus. I threw my parents under the bus. I threw my culture under the bus. I threw Black people under the bus, all to get to have a seat at this shameful table of whiteness. And it took, sincerely took, the perfect storm for me to wake the fuck up. And that truly is what scares me more than anything, because how are we expecting other people to wake up? I mean, frankly, at this juncture, I mean, let's let's actually take a step back and see where we are today. Waking up to find out that um, Alec Baldwin accidentally killed this woman because of a labor issue on set. I mean, I don't know. It's all kind of coming out right now. I feel like there's so many moments right now that could have been like the shot, you know, that killed Archduke Ferdinand. But like, what's gonna what's gonna cause all of us to have a radical awakening and overthrow all of this stuff. But like, you know, just a quick thing this morning, it's come out that on the set of this quote, Western movie. Let, let, let's just also take a minute and talk about Western movies. My God, like white supremacy, 
up and down. You know, the fact that we're still even shooting Western movies is disgusting. But like, set, like let's set that aside. There's a set. And apparently what's come out now is that the people on the set were there for 12, you know, to 14 hours, which is disgusting. And the set was right outside of San Santa Fe. And there were promised hotel rooms in Santa Fe. Totally like what should happen? Anyway, once they get there, they all get their, themselves to, to New Mexico onto the set. And it turns out that their hotel rooms are in Albuquerque, which are much cheaper than Santa Fe, which is 50 miles away. So these people are working on a set with guns. Um, and after 12 to 14 hours are expected to drive over an hour each way, you know, to get to their hotel room. So I guess what was happening is um, some of these prop guns went off a few times when they weren't supposed to up, up leading up to the shooting. So in the past week, and they were saying, this is unsafe. We have unsafe working conditions. Everybody is exhausted. Something bad is going to happen. Six hours before Alec Baldwin killed the director of photography, they walked off. Apparently a producer on the set told them that if they didn't, like, because they were piping up so much, if they didn't leave right away, they're going to call security, right? So they're going to call the cops on, on these folks who are demanding, union folks demanding better working conditions because they're scared someone's going to get hurt, right? You can't make this up. So the guy, I guess, who is like in charge of the props now is essentially a scab. Whether or not he knew it, who knows, comes in six hours after this happened. A non-union guy hands Alec Baldwin a gun and says cold gun, which I guess means there's no live rounds in it. And Alec Baldwin shoots and kills the director of photography. Like you almost can't make this up. And it's all on film. It's a movie. It's like meta, right? And so an international superstar murders the 42-year-old young, beautiful, white director of photography with the cameras rolling, the cameras that she has set up rolling. And we're amidst this whole like global labor uprising. Like at what point are we not going to see what's happening? You know, again, this morning, it's, I'm so happy it's making the rounds. Elizabeth Warren, who, by the way, very problematic. Elizabeth Warren's ec extremely problematic for a whole lot of reasons. First and foremost, her shitting on, on indigenous people, right? But Elizabeth Warren, there are clips now floating around of her as the only person during, this, during the primary season talking about the filibuster. So, yes, I mean, we can we can have a lot of beef with Elizabeth Warren, like which I do. But the fact that she was the only person running in this saturated primaries talking about the filibuster. And and there are people like back in the day saying how boring it was that she was talking about the filibuster. Like and, and look at what is happening now. I mean, nothing, nothing is getting done. Literally nothing is getting done. So even if you don't care, if you actually don't care about racism, if you don't care about immigration, if you don't care about labor, if you don't care about poverty, which by the way, 99.9% .9 of the people who hold wealth in this country are cis, straight, able-bodied white people. So they don't care about any of those things, right? What about the planet? If you actually don't care about anything, but you, you do want to preserve humanity on the planet, because ostensibly, if and when the Earth does and should kick us off, 
your ass is getting kicked off too. And these people think that they're going to like build a bunch of glamping bunkers under their house, which by the way is happening all over Silicon Valley. I'm also curious, like seriously curious. Aside, I mean, not all of them can afford to colonize Mars like Elon Musk and Bezos, right? They have bunkers. What's going to happen though? Like, I'm just, I'm, I sincerely, I would love someone to do a story on this. Like sincerely sit down with these fuckers and just say like, what is your plan? Like there's going to be a full like apocalypse and humans are gone, right? So then like the dust settles and you guys come up from your bunkers and then what? What the hell are you going to do? Are you going to hang out? I mean, I'm just so curious. Like, yeah, play board games, play Yahtzee. It's not going to be that awesome, I don't think. And and you guys are probably going to Hunger Games each other or Squid Game each other out after that either. Maybe there's going to be one, like, one person standing. So, you know, I just don't think that they think about these things because they're so obsessed with amassing wealth that there's no thought about, let's take this to the logical conclusion. So... Now we're in the situation where we have been told, this is not like a tea leaves situation. We have been told in no uncertain terms by climate scientists what is happening and what needs to happen to not stop it because it's unstoppable. You know, the train has left the station, but to slow it down and we're not doing it and we're blaming Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Like this by the way is whiteness on steroids. Is being so obsessed with procedure. So no like the filibuster has to stay and if like you know if we can't get a majority whatever bulldoze over this shit. Bulldoze over this shit. Like just make it happen. Jam it through. When Donald Trump came into office he said, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And everyone's like, oh yeah, there's no way it's going to happen. He just made it fucking happen. What the fuck is wrong with these people? Sincerely, what the fuck is wrong? Like there's some like kind of bomb cyclone and some crazy ass river situation that's about to like flood California. And I'm curious what's going to happen to the bunkers. Are they immune to bomb cyclones and like hurricane rivers? Who knows? Probably. But like everyone's like, God, it's so weird. It's so weird that we've had like 15 category 5 billion hurricanes. And it's so weird that like the Pacific Northwest was 195 degrees this summer, so hot that houses literally caught in fire and burnt. It's so weird that the Colorado River, I mean, we just went to Moab this past weekend, Southern Utah. The river is like gone. You know, like it's gone. The Colorado River is gone. And I know folks here in Denver who were born and raised here. And these are like, these are some of the craziest, busiest white ladies you've ever met. They've, but they've found time to outfit themselves in Lululemon and whatever the hell else they're wearing these days. But they talk about how they, you know, have spent their lives going to Lake Powell to boat. You know, they go on these houseboats on vacation every summer. And one of them told me a couple weeks ago, she was like, yeah, it's so weird. Like for the past three, four years, there's just like really no water. I think we might just have one summer left. And I was like, this is climate catastrophe. And she was like, you think? And I'm like, okay. So this is back to, at this point, if you're not awake, you are doing everything in your power. You are wearing, you've like put duct tape around your eyes, your ears, your nose, your mouth. I mean, it's like 
don't don't talk like nobody should speak right now however i'll say this like i've i've unfollowed most of these white ladies from college that that i used to be friends with but a couple i still follow on instagram just to keep myself honest to understand what they're doing and i shit you not they're all still literally posting picture after picture after picture of vacations and by the way we just went on vacation i'm not disparaging vacations like i also think like the purity of our movements is a disaster so it's you know i'm not disparaging vacations at all but like if all you're doing is vacationing and taking pictures and posting pictures of vacations and planning your next vacations you're absolutely completely immunizing yourself from reality and of course, I like blab about this to my therapist, who incidentally is a white woman who I love. Every week, she'll say to me, I'll just say, like, I can't understand. Like, why are people not more concerned? And she said, just bear in mind, when the Titanic sunk, there are documented, there's documented evidence that people, like, you know, the boat had hit the thing. It was, like, practically already splitting. And people were sending their steaks back to get cooked more. There is, a, it, we call it cognitive dissonance because we need euphemisms for everything to make everything better. It's denial. You know, it is absolutely 100% denial. And I think so many people choose to live in denial because they don't want to think about the eventuality, which by the way, we all die, right? Which is so crazy because what it is, is feigned, it's feigned fatalism. It's feigned powerlessness. And it's this notion that we actually have no control. So if we have no control, let's not do anything. It gives it, it lets us all off the hook. And it's disgusting. So that's what I do now. I work with white women. I have a partner here in Denver, a black woman, 70 years old, who, you know, lived through Jim Crow, lived through the 60s and 70s. And she'll be the first person to tell you that not only has nothing changed from her perspective, but things are worse now because of all these white liberals who think that, you know, they are doing God's work. We have a book coming out next fall called White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better. It's coming out with Penguin Books. We have four kids' books coming out with Knopf called The Race to the Truth series. So each one of those is being written by a different woman of color. One's about the truth about indigenous people, the truth about early chattel slavery, the truth about the Chinese American experience, the truth about the Mexican American experience. And I can tell you that BIPOC folks are very keen and very eager to tell our own stories. I can also tell you that the white lash that's happening right now is really bad. And someone phrased it so well. Chapter eight of our book is, is about white saviorism. And I've been struggling with that chapter the most. In some ways, I think it's the most important because it kind of encapsulates everything. But someone said recently, and I was like, God, that's so well put. We're now dealing with the situation of a Republican Party that's openly and notoriously fascist. So it's, it's actually, it, fascism is what, it, that's their brand, right? Versus the white savior party of soft fascists. And that, I'm like, that's what white saviorism is. It's soft fascism. It's pr pretty nuanced fascism. So, you know, it's it's going to Nepal and Vietnam and West Africa and taking pictures of, you know, your blonde kids building houses for all the poor brown and black people. And so I was on the phone with an investment bank last week, the director of community giving at an investment bank. 
and I'm trying to raise money for a nonprofit that I've recently started with two black women in New York City. It's called Haven. And so for all the BIPOC women listening here, please, please go to havenmedia.org and, and follow us there. And for all the white people listening, please go to race2dinner.com and check out our work there. But anyway, raising money from, you know, a bunch of different places. And I was put in touch with the head of community giving at this bank. And they have a policy of they don't give money to nonprofits. If they don't have a partner on the board, then they don't give money. So I did a little quick search guess who all their partners are. It's like literally 90% white men, 5% white women, and then 5% other, you know, other. So what is that? That's de facto supporting racism, xenophobia, classism, sexism, ableism, transphobia, all of the isms. That's what they're doing. So I'm like, you know, that's fine. I totally get it. I'm not here to beg anyone for anything. But I said, you know, just so you know, this policy, and by the way, it's a white woman, right, who's the head of their community giving, of course. And I said, this policy is de facto oppressive, you know? And I just went through and I said exactly what I just said now. You would have thought that I reached over and, like, pulled a kidney out of her body. Like, she she went crazy. Like, a tail came out of her bottom and horns came out of the top. And, like, she went, she went crazy. And she was like how dare you say that we're not dedicated to DEI? And I was like, I never, I never said that. I didn't say that. And she goes, well, maybe, maybe we just care more about recruiting and that's what we're focused on. And I said, that's totally fine. I'm not like, uh, whatever it is, but I'm just saying how, you know, I'm a lawyer by training and, and studied in great detail. In fact, I did, I was at the one, one of the few law schools in the country that actually did teach critical race theory. You know, this whole critical race theory thing is a boogeyman too. It's like taught in five law schools in the country. That's it. But anyway, how even if if a policy or statute comes from good intentions, which by the way, they almost never do, like this policy did not come from a good intention. But like, let's even let's even assume that the intention behind their policy is a good one. This is how there can be negative effects even with good intentions. And she was just like basically hung up and I haven't heard back from them, which is fine. But I talked to my friend who introduced me to her and I was like, God, she really went crazy. Like, and she said, you know, she used to work at a nonprofit helping people in the inner city. And I was like, yeah, so she's in her mind. She is a savior. And how dare I walk in and suggest anything otherwise? And so white saviorism is 100% white supremacy. So let's, you know, let's take a step back. White people created white supremacy. And what does white supremacy do? White supremacy is violence against black and brown people. By the way, it's also violence against white people. White supremacy hurts everyone, including white people, but white people don't see that. Even through COVID, white people don't see that. But that's, that's kind of amazing. That's back to really pretending not to see what's right in front of your face. But white supremacy hurts black and brown people. So white people created it to hurt us. And then they swoop in and toss out coins to us to save us from the horrible, violent scenario that they themselves have created and benefit from. But that's what's so funny about white saviorism. They actually never save anybody, right? It's all about making themselves look awesome and keeping us down and keeping us begging them for a life jacket and back to the titanic begging them for a life jacket and and 
stabbing each other's eyes out for a life jacket. So it's it's also really plays into the divide and conquer and the scarcity model that we're all fighting each other for scraps. And so that's where we are right now. You know, like that's where we are right now. And if you're not radicalized in any way, whatever it is, what if you're not paying attention, and that's the other thing that's that's interesting is no, not many people are even connecting the dots. Everyone's like, God, we have this labor shortage. It's so weird. Why is there this labor shortage? Oh, I don't know. First of all, there's well over a million fucking people who are dead from COVID. That's like, first of all, we have a big chunk of our our labor force that's dead from COVID, which was totally preventable. That's number one. Number two, how about this? People are really fucking sick of working themselves to death for scraps. That's actually what's happening. Getting paid nothing, killing themselves, making themselves sick, not being with their family, getting treated like shit. For what? Where's all the labor? Guess what? People are tired. People are sick and tired of it. So that's connected to ableism. That's connected to classism. That's connected to climate catastrophe. Nobody wants to see it. So we're all we're all looking at these things in silos rather that it's each one is a different. It's not even a different puzzle piece. We're looking at this as it's each one's a different puzzle. And until and unless we see how we as humans have uplifted capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy above people and humanity, we have no hope. We have literally no hope. And that's kind of where I sit today and every day. And anytime I say that, people are like, God, you're such a downer. I'm sorry. Toxic positivity is not going to save the climate. Like love trumps hate is not going to end racism. Just send good vibes into the universe is not going to save the earth. Love is love and love trumps hate. And, you know, namaste. Oh, my God. The cultural appropriation doesn't solve houselessness. And the amount of money, it's its amazing. Do we even know how much money we just signed off to Israel to continue their genocide against the Palestinians? But we can't eradicate poverty here. We can't give people, there's not even a floor vote for Medicare for all during a pandemic when we have both houses of Congress as Democrats and the White House. No, we don't have enough money for that. But here's a blank check to the tune of billions of dollars, Israel. You go ahead and continue genocide against Palestinians. Yeah, go do that. I've just, I've honestly had it. And and look, I'm not exceptionalizing myself. Like so many of us are like, why aren't we revolting? Why aren't we all banding together and revolting? You know why? Because the system is working perfectly to prevent us from doing that, to prevent us from seeing how we can do that. And any time we've had any kind of a effective mass movement, I'll use the Women's March as a recent one. And like, you know, again, just like Elizabeth Warren, say what you will about the Women's March. I'm not here to defend it in any way, shape or form. But that was a, that was an organization that actually had the ability to do something. And fragile white people came in and wrecked it by having the entire leadership fight with each other. That's essentially it. It's every time it happens. It's a scarcity model. It's a divide and conquer. You're seeing it again now with this whole anti-Asian hate. Again, I'm Asian. There are pe- Asian people who were saying Asian lives matter. And I tweeted, 
we can we can absolutely support Asian people without co-opting the Black Lives Matter movement. And I got not only I, my literary agent got an email from an East Asian programmer in Silicon Valley who said that I was xenophobic and racist towards Asians. And he, even though he knows I'm Asian, I'm a different kind of Asian because my skin color is different and my eye shape is different. So that's where we are now. Like that's literally where we are. I mean, it's the, the bar is not low. The bar is underground. And so how do we keep hope in all of this? This black woman this summer who I love, she has this awesome blog and I was talking to her and she says to me, cause she also is like, yeah, there's no hope. And she works in the anti-racism space as well. And, and I was like, you know, how, like, how do we keep doing what we do? And why do you keep doing what you do? And she said, because there's no other choice. Like we have to live our, we have to live, right? Like we have to get through 24 hours in a day and get to the next day and, and keep it moving. And so we have to do what we can do to get through the day. And she said, personally, I'm just trying to keep my hands clean and stay on the right side of history. Do I think that what I'm doing is changing anything? Absolutely not. But I know that I couldn't just sit idly. And I also know I couldn't just be doing some other random thing and being part of a work at a company or something and be part of that problem. And so I think that's where I am now is, is like, I'm just trying to keep my hands clean and stay on the right side of history.